0: This talk was given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard-Sensei. Zuisei-Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazwisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. From these clouds that carelessly cover the star that was just that just was there, from these mountains over there, now for a while taken by the night, from this river on the valley floor that glimmers with the sky's broken light, from me and all of this to make one thing, from me and from the feel of the flock brought back to the fold to outlast the great dark closing down of the world, from me and from each flicker of light from the shadowed houses, Lord, to make one thing, from the strangers among whom I know not one, Lord, and from me, from me, to make one thing, from all the slumbering ones, cuffing old men in the hospice, sleep-drunken children in crowded beds, from me and all I don't know, to make the thing, O oh Lord, that thing, that half heaven, half earth, that gathers into its gravity only the sum of flight, weighing nothing but arrival. <clears throat> I have been thinking about faith, about what it is to me and how it relates uh, to my practice. And a couple of people have asked me recently uh, what my faith is. And so I've been reflecting on this and um, as I did, you know, doubt, its counterpart, came up and then very naturally determination followed, which, you know, as as most of you probably know, these are the three pillars uh, of Zen, as Kapoor Roshi called them, or the three essentials. Yasutani Roshi referred to them. So great faith, great doubt, and great determination. And while I was thinking of this, a couple of other things happened. Someone sent me a couple of lines from a Rilke poem called Spanish Trilogy. And um, this poem that I read is the first of the three parts. And I saw that they captured actually quite nicely these three essentials. And in the meantime, I kept uh, receiving in the mail uh, packages from an unknown source... Uh, little booklets called the Modern Spirituality Series, arranged for daily reading, and I have three now, um, on teachings by Dorothy Day and Father Bede Griffiths and Thomas Merton, all of whom, of course, in their own way, spoke and practiced faith and doubt and determination. And so I decided that I would that I would explore these three essentials, beginning with faith, which really contains the other two. And that is true of doubt and of determination. So instead of having just three essentials, what you have is three containing three, each of which, each of which contains three, and so on. I thought of that image of a candle between two mirrors that gets multiplied endlessly. Or like the, the work of a Japanese artist... Yayo Kusama, you know, her infinity mirrors, these flickers of light that extend into infinity. And it seemed to me a good image um, that explains why, or that illustrates why we actually really only need a little bit of faith, just enough doubt, a flicker of determination in order to practice you need just enough to turn toward yourself, to turn toward a path, toward a different way of meeting your mind, which is the same as meeting the world. Yasutani Roshi said, you only need 1%. Because with that speck of light, if you really stay with it, if you really practice, that sparks another bit of light, that sparks another and another. Perhaps in a, in a skillful word, in an action, a moment of letting go. That is nonetheless, in, in that moment, I mean, it's, it's so infinitesimal. And it is nevertheless the seed for the next instant of practice. And I think really about how little light you need to illuminate. I think of, you know, when I, when I do a hermitage, and at night I have just the one candle on the altar, and it is filling the whole room. That's the thing about light, you cannot contain it. And the writer, Edith Warden said that there's really two ways of spreading light, to be the candle or the mirror that reflects it. And so we can have faith in our ability to awaken, in our ability to practice, our ability to let go of a thought. Or we can take actions that reflect that faith, even if in that moment, or two, or three, we are not feeling it. Because if we waited to practice until we felt clear and strong, certain, trusting, we might not practice at all. And so we're not waiting, we're not waiting in practice for the for the ideal conditions, or even the right conditions. You know, to practice really means to do. Even if that means sitting quietly, seemingly doing nothing. We're practicing something. And so sometimes we, we turn towards a faith that we do not yet feel. And we act based not on our feeling, but based on our aspiration. And sometimes people say, well, but that doesn't feel sincere. Like, that's, you know, just fake it till you make it. And our sincerity is not in the intent. I'm sorry, our sincerity is in our intent, not in those ever-changing states of mind. I mean, think of just even the session a period, a period of zazen. In one instant, you hate everything. You hate the person sitting next to you. Their smell, their haircut, how they're breathing, they're moving, they're not moving. You just hate them. <laughs> for no apparent reason, you just do. I mean, the poor jikidos actually get it the worst. <laughs> you know, think of sitting there for a period of Zazen, it's like, jikido, ring the bell, ring the bell. Surely the period is over by now. Ring the bell. Are you asleep? Why is the monitor? Are the monitor saying anything? They must be asleep too. And you just you get more and more worked up, really over nothing. And so if we trusted, you know, these fickle, fickle states of mind, and where, where would we be? In one minute you hate everyone. The next minute you're in love. You want to become a monk. Where do I sign up? And, um, you know, it's not that we um, that these states of mind are not real, because in that moment, of course they are. But how do you really know what is, um, what is really there? What is it that you're actually seeing? How much of it are we creating? I mean, we're creating all of it, actually. We're creating all of it. But so then, what do you trust? How do you know that what you see in front of you is what is actually there? You know, that, that story, you may have heard this story, of there's, there's a, a guy, he's um, driving in the desert, and it's noon, and it's 105 degrees out, and he gets a flat tire, and he's in a rented car, so when he goes to look for the jack, the jack is missing. And so, but he remembers that a couple of miles back, he saw a gas station, so he decides he's going to go back and ask them if he can borrow a jack, and maybe even get a lift. So he starts walking, and it's hot. Obviously, it's, it's, it's hot, and so he's uncomfortable. And he starts thinking, you know, I mean, in this heat, they're not going to turn me away. And a jack, you know, everybody has a jack, so I'm sure they'll lend me a jack. And then he thinks, but well, you know, it is their jack. What if they charge me for it? I mean, how much could they charge me? Twenty dollars. Okay, I mean that's a jack is worth twenty dollars. I'll pay twenty dollars. That's fine. He keeps walking. Well, but they know that I don't really have a choice. So what if they ask me for forty? Well, you know you have forty dollars. I mean don't be stingy. You can definitely afford forty dollars. But they really do know that I don't have a choice. What if they ask for eighty? I mean do, would they really do that? Would they really take advantage of me in that way? Well, why not? I mean they can after all. What if they ask for a hundred? And he thinks, but you really know you don't have a choice. So you're kind of relying on them. You know, and by this point, you know, he's dizzy from the heat. He feels like he's swallowed his shirt. You know, he's so, he's so parched. And he thinks, well, I'll offer them a hundred. I mean, they can't possibly turn that down. It's five times what the jack is worth, but, you know, okay. And what if they don't accept it? What if they don't accept a Jesus? I mean, how ruthless can these people be? I mean, 200? Would that be enough? And then he thinks, you know, even if they ask you for 300, you know you have to pay. Because what's the alternative? Sleep in your car? you will probably die if you do that. And he thinks these people really are ruthless. I mean, how cruel can anybody be? By this point, he's almost at the gas station. And he's thinking, they're probably just going to turn me back, turn me down, or they might take all my money and my watch, what if they don't like how I'm dressed? What if they say to me, you know, you had it coming to you? He walks through the door. There's this woman, sees him, she's smiling. He bangs his, his fist on the counter and says, you keep your stupid jack, I didn't even want it anyway. And he slams out of the place back you know, into the heat and his broken car without a jack. Think of how many periods of Zazen have you had like that? <laughs> Slightly different content perhaps so if we, if we can't trust sometimes our, our um, creating minds then what do we trust in, in Christianity and specifically in the Old Testament faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen and I was reflecting that in Buddhism, faith, faith is really the substance of things recognized and the evidence of things perhaps not yet seen. And so in Buddhism, really, having faith means knowing that that which you seek, you already are. That no matter how off course you think you've gone, that you actually are never lost. What does it mean, actually, to be lost? A student told me many years ago he went to um, an AA meeting and a woman introduced herself and said, you know, I finally understand that I cannot drink like other people because I'm abnormal. And the student thought, wait, that's not right. That's not right. And the next day they went to the temple for the first time and in the Sunday discourse they heard, you're perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And they thought, okay. I can work with this. And of course, that doesn't mean there isn't work to be done. There's lots of work to be done. I mean, we just have to look at the papers. We just have to look at our minds. There's lots of work to be done. But it is, like Suzuki Roshi said, you know, you're perfect and complete and you could use a little bit of work. How different is it to uh, begin a path to set off on a journey, trusting your original perfection, as opposed to an original uh, kind of brokenness. What does that do to your mind? What does that do to your being? As, as, as Roshi was speaking of um, I remember if it was yesterday or, or Wednesday that it, 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 everything becomes workable when there is something inherently wrong, inherently abnormal with me, then it makes it very difficult to actually uh, feel that there is anything that you can do about it, about yourself, about your confusion, your deeply ingrained states of mind. And so you could say we... we um, We have faith in both truths and the fact that I am perfect and complete and in the fact that there is so much for me yet to see and even more than that, so much for me to embody. To actually be able to manifest that perfection in my life. Because I forget. Because I become afraid. Because I get confused. But the more I practice... And the more I, I come in contact with really what Dada Roshi used to call the ground of being. The more I am in fact able to, to see that that perfection was never missing. And that the, it is in fact the way that I am. And it's you know a matter of clearing out clearing out all all that has been in the way of me manifesting that. And perfection, you know, we really mean um, wholeness, wholeness and harmony, so not infallibility. So the Buddha said, whatever beings there are, whether footless or two-footed or four-footed, with form or without form, With or without understanding, of these, the Tathagata is reckoned foremost. And those who have faith in the Buddha have faith in the foremost. And for those who have faith in the foremost, the result will be foremost. Whatever states there are, whether conditioned or unconditioned, of these, non-attachment is reckoned foremost. That is, the subduing of vanity, the elimination of thirst, the destruction of craving, non-attachment, cessation, nirvana. Those who have faith in the Dharma of non-attachment have faith in the foremost. The Sangha of the Buddha's disciples is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutation, the unsurpassable field of merit for the world. Those who have faith in the Sangha have faith in the foremost, and for those with faith in the foremost, the result will be foremost." So, of course, this is faith in the three treasures. And the the Buddha, it is having faith both in the person, in Shakyamuni Buddha himself, in his path, in his life. You know, it was at the, the fifth of the of the uh, monastic vows. It says, you know, I, I vow to, to uh, live the Buddha's way. And that oh, Roshi would always make a... Um, would always stress that part of it—that you're really um, vowing to live as the Buddha lived, of course, in our time, relevant to our time, but as the Buddha lived. So it is very much having faith on, on, in that person who lived and died, and who taught for all of those years. And in my own in my own practice, I have you know, over time, just really looked at that, you know, my, my relationship, certainly to these three treasures, but my relationship specifically to the Buddha. How, how do I relate to him, the man, and also him, the, the kind of the omniscient Buddha that appears that is so often described in Mahayana Buddhism? How do I understand both? What does it have to do with me and how I'm living my life right now? Because in the sutras, it is it is um, difficult. It is not easy to to get a picture of the man. There There's a couple of, of books I have told, you know, his story more from a kind of, you could say, biographical perspective. But mostly what you get is the teaching. So it's, it's, it's hard to get a picture of him, the man. And yet, he's in all of his words, of course. It is also having faith in his awakening, in his realization, in that moment in which he said, I and all beings on this great earth at once have attained the way, in that moment in which all of us were included in that awakening, everybody who's passed and everybody who was, is yet to come. And what does that mean? And once again, what does that mean now for me and my practice? and also the awakening of all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. I've always thought in that, um, and I've, I've said this before, in that the, the echo that we chant, the old Buddhas that we chant during the liturgy, um, I, I always, I, I imagine, I, I see this, this room filled with all of those Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, that I'm, in, with my words, I'm invoking them, I'm inviting them into this room, which again, is, I mean, it's, it's a formality. They don't need an invitation. But my um, saying those words is me inviting them, saying, yes, I, I too am here, and I need you, and I need your help. Because if you notice, you know that, that the, the echo, it doesn't have a verb. It's really all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, the Mahasattvas, the great beings... It seems like there's nothing happening. Or is there? It is also faith in the teacher and in their vow to help us awaken. And not just faith in their guidance, but also in their faith in us. And I think over the years, how many times... I doubted myself and my ability. My ability to practice and to see clearly, to let go of those deeply, deeply entrenched habits. How many times I sat on my cushion and I thought, I, I cannot do this. Everybody else seems like they're, they're doing it. I, I don't know how they're doing it. I cannot do this. And then my teachers would, by their, by their words and by the way they acted towards me, I, it, it felt that they had utter faith in me. And I would think, well, I mean, if they think I can do it and I trust them, then I must be able to do this. Even if I don't understand how or when. But maybe they're seeing something that I'm not seeing yet, but I, I want to, I'd like to see it. And so I trusted, almost despite myself, in those times, I think. And it is also faith in our own Buddha nature. In that capacity to awaken, in, in the, the truth that it is my inheritance. That it is my, um, well, my, my birthright. That because I am a, a being with a certain consciousness and that I have a body with which to practice the teachings and live my life, that I can actually awaken in this lifetime. that that is possible for me. Then there is faith in the Dharma and the teachings that point to, to harmony, that point to the end of craving and delusion. It is also very specifically the Buddhist teachings, his words. It's also faith in the truth of things, in, in their suchness, you could say, in their their being what they are. Because things don't really deceive us. It's, it's the way our way of seeing, our way of using our mind that deceives us, our partial seeing that confuses us. And so having faith in the Dharma is having deep trust that things are in fact the way that they are and that they're constantly revealing that and that I can see that. How many stories you know, have we heard, and all the cons, of course are filled with them, of teachers who realize themselves by seeing plum blossoms, by hearing the sound of rain or hearing a phrase or a word Slamming of a door, a breath, a single breath. And many, many years ago, the families were here, and Roshi has told this story before, but the families were here, and um, it was a family retreat. And we had decided, Dido Roshi really decided he was going to bring in the wizard of Mount Tremper. We had told the kids, we, we, had, we had a whole story built around the wizard. And Dido decided that that year he was going to appear. And so he dressed up as the wizard. And he had a cloak and a staff and a pipe. I mean, he really did it up. We had dry ice. It was, it was very dramatic. <laughs> we were all in the dining hall. And uh, all the families you know, and all the residents were there. And somebody had charged Roshi with, uh, Shugen Roshi with um, leading us in chanting Mu. I don't know what the kids made of that, but we did it. And at one point, you know, the double doors in the back just you know, fly open. And Dido, as the wizard, walks in and uh, is, is given a chair. He sits down in his, his armchair. And, of course, the kids, and you can't imagine their faces, their jaws were on the floor. <laughs> I mean, really, just for that, it was, it was worth it. And he told us a story. He, he had a, a version of Senjo and her soul that was kind of um, a Native American version, if you will, that he always liked to tell as the wizard. So he told that story. And then he was getting ready to, to go, and one of the kids went up to him and said, "'Can you do magic?' And Dido said, okay, you want to see magic? And Bobby, this kid, said, yes, I do. He said, okay, well, come over here. And so Bobby goes up really close to the wizard. And uh, the wizard says, okay, now take a deep breath. Inhale. Okay, now exhale. And Dido says, that's magic. I think Bobby was pretty disappointed. LAUGHTER <laughs> The rest of us thought it was great. <laughs> so when is the breath a wall? When is it, I cannot find my breath? When is it a doorway? When is it magic? And what kind of magic? And a doorway into what? When is a breath the whole universe? The whole universe. There's also faith in the Sangha, in this company of noble friends with whom we fight and struggle and from whom we get strength and guidance and inspiration to continue walking along the path. So although this is a solitary practice because no one can practice your body and your mind for you, why do this then every month if it didn't help to do this in the company of noble friends? That person you were hating in the last period, in this one, you look at them and they're sitting so still and you think, oh, I want to do that. And if they can do it, maybe. Maybe I can too. You you see someone who's taking care of something very very simple. You know, cleaning a, a drip in the coffee service, or you know, open, helping someone—you know—just to open a door because their their hands are filled with something, and you just realize it's something so simple. But in that moment, they noticed; they were paying attention. Oh, I want to do that too. Okay. And so we have faith in these three treasures, and this faith. Um, Dilgo cancer Rinpoche says it goes through four four stages. There's clear faith, which is seeing, seeing the wonderful qualities of the Buddha, seeing them in your teacher or in a Sangha member, seeing them in the Dharma. And your mind becomes clear and joyful. I really like the way that's phrased. You know, so it's not so often we're we're you know, we see something in, in someone else and, and we get we become jealous you know it's it's like this this mind of of lack Oh will they have something that i don't and we feel less than this is more like sympathetic joy like the third of the four immeasurables this is seeing that in someone and 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 being glad and being joyful so not discouraged not depressed and I was thinking of, of Roshi's talk yesterday, I, I really felt, you know, he, he took his guts, he was offering us his guts and his heart and his blood, you know, all of it. It was the, the, the Koans speak of it as a grandmotherly kindness also. It's like offering everything. And you see that in someone and you think, Yes, yes. And then there's longing fate, faith faith, uh, wanting wanting those qualities for yourself so that you can be of benefit. And, you know, probably in the beginning, all of us want it for ourselves because of what we think it will give us, a sense of accomplishment or perhaps some sort of power, some sense of having achieved something. But I really think that as we, as we practice, it, it, it kind of purifies itself, if you will, because you realize, oh, you can't really leave anyone behind. You can't leave them out. It is, as the Buddha said in that moment of his enlightenment, everyone comes along. So it's a kind of aspirational faith. is wanting to see and wanting to be clear and wanting to manifest that for the benefit of, of all. And then there's confident faith. That's the point in which you, you do know. You know you are able to attain these qualities. And the more you practice, again, the harder it is to, to willfully go to sleep. You know, we can, still, we can still do that, and we do it in moments, So or moments in which we know we could do X and we do Y because that's what we've always done. So there's still that. But this stage of faith, you know, you do know, that you, you have this capacity. And so that, that tension, that gap, that discomfort, when, when you act contrary to your own harmony, the sense of things, it just becomes more uncomfortable. And that's good, because it, 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 that's what helps you to um, change, You know, I've often thought, you know, it's just change, it's so difficult for us to change because it's so uncomfortable. And often we don't until we have to, until we have to. And so, to me, this stage of moving into confident faith is is the having to more and more. It's saying, I can't stay asleep anymore. And then there is irreversible faith. And you can't go back. And so this is a place in which no matter how long the path and how difficult it seems, you know it's your path. It's your path. So in a sense, it doesn't matter how long or how difficult because you have to walk it. And at a certain point, you know, difficulty, it doesn't even come into the picture. You're doing what you must do in a moment, in the next moment, in the next moment. And at the same time, faith isn't certainty. It's really the willingness to keep your eyes open. Um, Gokhan mentioned the Desert Fathers, and I I also had a saying. One of them said to his monastics, You have to be all I. I hear that as you have to stay awake, you have to, to, to stay very alert to what is true and what is real. In other words, don't deceive yourself. And so another way of saying it is you, you do have to also be willing to not know. There is a knowing, but it's not intellectual knowing. It's not knowing with your head. It's not superficial knowing. And this is so hard for us because we do want to know. I, I did. I have. I still do. And I think of, of, of how long it took me to really let go of that because I had so trusted that way of of being, of thinking, of of navigating my world. And it it's, it's it seems like it's easier when things are concrete, when they are black and white, when I just know where everything is. You know, to, of course to live in, in uncertainty is difficult for all of us. But this isn't this isn't uncertainty as, you know, everything goes, anything goes. There is very much a ground. It's just not what we think it is. And it doesn't look any way that we think it does, luckily. Because what we can imagine is so limited. It's so limited. Luckily, it doesn't look like we think it will. And so another, uh, I think another aspect of faith is is um, being more and more willing and comfortable with willing to see and comfortable with change and subtlety, you know. Because also the more we practice, the more subtle our patterns become. You know, in the beginning, they're they're right there, they're right in our face, so it's difficult to ignore them. And you go through those very difficult periods of seeing it, not wanting to be that way, to act that way anymore, and not yet being able to shift. It's a very uncomfortable time in practice. But if you stay with it, eventually you do. You begin to shift. You begin to turn. You begin to see you have other choices. And then it just becomes more subtle. You know Our, our particular buffers that we turn to, because we each have our, our, our main wants, that we, that we turn to when we feel in some way attacked or uncomfortable. They become, they become softer, they become more subtle. But they're still there, and it's still very much self arising. And so I think a, an aspect of faith is, is being wi- willing to continue to refine, really trusting that there really is no end to the path, and that that's not a bad thing. Quite the contrary. And also trusting that, or, or being aware, understanding that faith itself changes, that it ebbs and flows like every other created thing. And yet underneath it is something that is uncreated, that is not conditioned. And I think that's the ground that Rilke is, is uh, speaking of, where he's, he's invoking the making of one thing. You know, that cloud carelessly covering a star, a mountain that gets swallowed up by night. And he's saying, from all of these things and from strangers and friends, from those I love and those I have trouble with, from all of those things to make one thing, which isn't really that you have to make it. The, th- the one thing is always there, but I think, but we are working to see, to see it in everything. Because when we don't, when we don't see it, it becomes possible to separate. You know, it becomes reasonable. As we've been hearing in the news, it becomes reasonable, possible and perhaps reasonable, you know, to separate a parent from their a child from their parent. And it becomes possible to speak of it in terms of you know, political agendas and, and tough policies and, and keep at bay the fact that this is a human being that is being affected an 11-month-old human being, you know, in some cases. And we, you know, we, we sent out this, this week um, a letter, you know, those of you who are here will, will see it when you return, when you go home, um, ab- about this, you know, from the Dharma Action Group um, to, our, to our email list, letting people know, first, this is happening, you know, and I, I think, you know, all of us know this, but you know this is happening, and this is how many families are being separated, and this is what some people are trying to do about it, and just encouraging people to, to act in some way. There was a, a petition that um, the Soto Zen Buddhist Association put forth that Roshi helped to, to draft. That was um, encouraging people, Buddhist practitioners, to sign if they felt they wanted to do this. And so we had a link to that, and we had... Um, a link to an organization that's just doing work um, raising funds for the immigration bond uh, that the families have to pay where they are stopped, where they're detained, and uh, for, for lawyers, to retain lawyers, to bring these families back together. And, you know, we got some complaints from people who were saying, you know, you've, you've become political and I was reflecting on that and, you know, when in one sense, I really I understand that kind of sense of, of disappointment because we're a contemplative order. And, you know, so why are we getting involved with this sort of thing? And if we do, will that detract from this? Will that detract from the, the critical work of turning inward, of cultivating samadhi and cultivating prajna wisdom, Will, will we lose our way by being activists? And, um, you know, the, the, the Dharma Action Group is not a political group. I mean, it's a group of us. It's a group of practitioners who are vowing every day to save all beings and who are vowing every day to put an end to suffering, and not just in an aspirational way as may all beings be free from suffering, which, of course, is critical because that's what our practice rests on. But we're vowing to do that concretely, to, to, to take actions that have real effects on real people. And also, and this is my, my opinion, you know, to take a child from their parent and to put them in a cage, I guess I don't see that as a political um, issue. I see it as a human issue. And so there is sitting quietly, and minding our own business, and then there is speaking up and acting, minding our own business. Because really the only way to, to willfully create harm is through the illusion of separation. Separation. The only way to unconsciously create harm is through the illusion of separation. And and we fuel that illusion, that sense, when we go numb or when we turn the other way or when we actively, actively separate. This is religion, this is politics, this is important, this is not, this I will look at, this I will not. And I think that is why our practice is about getting close, about letting those barriers fall away, about getting close to strangers and friends, to those dying old men and those children in crowded beds. Getting close to everything that we think we know and everything that we most certainly don't yet know. And to both get close to what we do love, and want to nurture, and also what we would rather not look at and not deal with, not think about, not meet. Because we are a single flock returning to the fold. And there are stray sheep always, and some are wreaking havoc, and others are caring for the ones that can't care for themselves, and they're bringing them back into that fold. It's still just one flock. It moves and breathes and lives as one body. Which means that what I do, little old me, little old you, matters. It matters. And if this makes us anxious in any way, you know, Rilke accounted for that too. In his letters, letters for a, to a young poet, he said, you must not be frightened... If a sadness rises in front of you, larger than any you have ever seen, if an anxiety like a light and cloud shadows moves over your hands and over everything you do, you must realize that something is happening to you, that life has not forgotten you, that it holds you in its hand and will not let you fall. Life holds you in its hand and will not let you fall. That's really the same as saying you're holding yourself. And you cannot fall. Because where will you look to find something that is not you? Something that you would fall onto, that is not you? What could you possibly see or hear or experience or think that is not that one thing? And so when we know this, you could say there is the 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 burden of responsibility, but it's only a burden when we step back from it. When you step forward, it is just what you're meeting in that moment. And you know, I, I for one have very much chosen this life, this contemplative life this life of turning inward and sitting in silence that I think is so critical to our survival, frankly. If I didn't think this was um, the best way that I had to offer my life, I I would be doing something else. But I also think I can't just sit quietly because that's not enough either. and yet for now, so here we are, you know, it's towards the the end of Sashin, and there's still a good number of hours left in it. And the strength, you know, the strength to, to act and to know how to best act, I do feel very much comes from that inward turning. So that when we do take a step forward, We know where it is that we're stepping. And we know, we understand who or what is the one who is stepping. So we still have plenty of time left in this session. Let's really make the most of it. For more talks... To get information about Zuisei Sensei's upcoming teachings or to join her email list, please visit vanessa-zwisée-goddard.org.